You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. What's up, everybody? Happy Christmas week or whatever holiday you celebrate. Hopefully you can just chill. Like, let's all take a collective breath because, uh, you know, the world feels really unstable now more than ever. I mean, well, maybe not more than ever, but now it just feels really cyclical, right? More on that in a moment. But I have to tell you, first of all, thank you for everybody sharing listening, distributing the best of 2021 podcast around. I, uh, yeah, I just always love that show. Love the feedback that uh, I get from it. And it's always appreciated because that's frankly why we all are engaged in this independent music community to find out about records and bands and stuff they may have missed. And uh, I really, really dig doing that. So thank you for everybody who listened to that episode. And if you missed it, obviously go back, listen to the best of 2021 podcast that we did. Today is a, another special guest this week. His name is Ken Andrews. He plays in a rock band called Failure. He also played in You're the Rabbit and uh, did his own solo thing for a while, which I actually uh, bring up in this interview because uh, I saw him perform at uh, Fingerprints Music here in Long Beach, California. But uh, Failure is such a huge band for me, and I got into them via Caven. And uh, I'll, I'll talk about that more in the uh, intro of the interview where I speak to Ken. But uh, I was, uh, honestly, I was pretty nervous about this because, uh, I mean, Ken doesn't come with a reputation preceding him as far as being, you know, prickly or, you know, a difficult interview or anything like that. But man, this was such a fun hang. He was down to just chop it up. And I, I really enjoyed that experience. And uh, they have a brand new record that just came out, I want to say, uh, two, a couple weeks ago. Um, it is called, I'm looking it up as we speak, Wild Type Droid. It is an unbelievable record. I mean, if you liked, you know, Fantastic Planet and everything that uh, kind of built them, their fan base, you will absolutely love this new record of theirs. And uh, it's just, it's it's a heavy rock record, man. Just just listen to it. You'll probably enjoy it if you've ever liked what Failure has done in the past. But um, yeah, so we talked to him. But you can always email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. You can also do me a, this is a new favor I'm asking of you. Spotify just recently rolled out a star ranking uh, for specific podcasts. So if you go into the 100 words page, uh, you can give it a star rating. And I would appreciate that because you once you do that, it makes you more legitimate in that app's eyes and then all the algorithms work in your favor. So if you listen to the show on Spotify, please leave it a star review. I would appreciate that. And then you can always do that on Apple Podcasts. Write a review if you'd like. I did recently see some people uh, posting reviews on there, and I appreciate that. Thank you for doing those things. And um, yeah, I, I've been paying attention to the obviously the horrible um, resurgence of COVID in regards to shows being canceled and tours having to, you know, move even further out next year. And it just, it feels so weird and tenuous. And I know that uh, many people are feeling anxiety in regards to that because um, I know many musicians and people who are doing the damn thing as far as touring is concerned and pulling live music are listen to this show. And um, yeah, I, I, I feel for you. I, I wish that there was some light at the end of the tunnel. And I know that uh, many of us are kind of trying to process that, but 
it, it will come back. I know it will. And I'm not just trying to be positive for positive sake. Um, live music will always exist. And it's just a matter of finding our way through the weirdness that is right now. So yeah, keep your head up. I, I will be here ready and waiting to come back to live shows. I've been to a few, um, but you know, am I going to be going to them over the next uh, month or so? Probably not. I'm going to take a pause on that. So anyways, let's talk to Ken Andrews. Like I said, the new failure record is called Wild Type Droid. It just came out and it's a really good record. So we talk about that and many other things. So here is Ken. I can't believe I could say that. That's so stoked. sure this is a, a, a statement that has been uh, said to you before, but uh, I 100% got into failure in your music uh, via Caven and mm. their cover of Magnified. And it was one of those things like coming up in the punk and hardcore scene that was, you know, a, a very important band. And as they started to progress and then understand their influences, I was like, huh, what's this, what's this failure band all about? And then I felt like this guy opened up where I was like, Oh, wow. How did I miss this? <laughs> and Yeah. Oh, that's cool. That's yeah. A, that's a cool story. Yeah. And I'm sure it's interesting for you to kind of hear those anecdotes to see how, I guess, different people kind of jump into your band from different generations. Is it, uh, is it interesting for you to kind of hear those uh, little tidbits? Oh, yeah. I love it. I love it because we have pretty varied uh stories you know i mean a lot of it goes back to like oh i saw you in 95 open for tool because we around those years we were doing a lot of um support work uh for them we see we were friends with them we both got signed within like six months of each other and we're playing like local bar shows in in hollywood but then they clearly took off like really quickly and we didn't and so they were just like hey you want to see how big we are <laughs> right <laughs> and we were like what do you mean well you can open for us <laughs> and we were really like cool. cool cool actually it was really cool because especially in the very early days tool um, I mean, they kind of went, they, 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 as they got bigger and bigger and bigger, their audience kind of, you know, changed and got m much more broad. I mean, now when you go to a tool show, it's like a lot of families, you yeah. know? Uh, but back then the hardcore metal people hadn't really embraced them yet. It was actually more like college kids who were like hearing about alternative rock and nirvana and stuff like that and so those shows were really fun because it was like you could just tell like people were hearing a band like tool and a band like failure for the first time yep and so there was there was an excitement because of that it was like it felt new and it, it was like people were there was a lot of different kinds of people, good mix between male and female, and and right. 
and it was fun. And and both bands, as, as time went on, you know, maybe a little bit more for Tool, the the audience got a little bit more like hardcore metal. And then they kind of broke open even bigger, and then it got very, where it is right now, which is very broad. Mm-hmm. But I always remember those early shows as just being like so, so fun. Right. <laughs> and it, it, I know it was, uh, I mean, I appreciate you articulating those, you know, different uh, touch points where, you know, you watch your peers and other bands, you know, grow and ebb and flow and obviously receive a lot amount of, a lot of success. And then, you know, generationally speaking, looking at a band like Cave In that's able to point people like me who, you know, I'm, I'm in my early 40s and, you know, I was obviously alive when you guys were uh, gigging around, but it just was not on my radar. But a band like Cave In that can retroactively get me into something and then, like I said, be able to, you know, open up Pandora's box of like, wait, there's this band that they are totally like you know we'll, we'll be honest like taking a lot of influence from you guys and then uh you know building on it and uh it's interesting to watch that and then for me to be able to engage with your music and then obviously see you again as you started to come back and stuff like that it's very interesting that full circle nature is really interesting yeah yeah so the the steve steven is sort of become a friend of mine i i see him you know once or twice a year usually um so that that the connection i have with him and and his band um is is really just i don't know very organic and very it's like one of those things like you meet someone and you kind of feel like you already know him yep yeah right you're you're up well and i i think that's really cool that you feel that because i i do think that people that exist in the you know for lack of a better term diy scene you have that immediate connection of like, oh yeah, I know what it's like to play in front of four people and have no one care about my music or <laughs> like you just yeah. know, you're in the trenches together and you know it. Totally. Yeah. Shared experience is awesome. Yeah. Very true. Very true. And so kind of putting the, the spotlight in you as an individual, I know you were born and raised in uh, Seattle proper, or did you come up in actually Seattle or the suburbs surrounding? Actually in Seattle. Uh, okay. but, but this was, uh, you know, I moved, my childhood was mostly in the seventies in Seattle. So it was a very different place than it is now. Yep. Um, we actually lived pre- pretty much, uh, in the university district right there in the center of town, the university of Washington. Cause my mom worked there. Mm, okay. Uh, so we always lived very close to the university and, uh, so it was kind of the center of town. It's not downtown, but it's like, you know, it's a very vibrant, vibrant place. Uh, but then I moved to San Diego, uh, when I was 13, went to high school there and then, uh, moved up to Los Angeles to, uh, finish, uh, college. Mm -hmm. I was studying, um film right and i've been been in la ever since then so seattle is very like childhood sure yeah you were you i mean i I think most people start to develop an actual identity in you know junior high and high school and stuff like that so it sounds like that was your experience in san diego yeah sort of i mean that's well 
It was, I mean, my identity was like, you know, more San Diego, basically, <laughs> you know, sure, and, sure. and less me, but like, or less where I ended up. Uh, but yeah, no, there was, I mean, still, I, I have, I, I listened to a lot of 91X when I went to school, when I went to high school. Right. Um, so that's where the 80s, um, you know, melodicism comes from for sure yeah and i know all those all the 80s uh all like alternative or whatever they were calling you know british right. invasion <laughs> new, new wave et new wave et new wave yeah. yeah sorry no no it's fine i i, I mean i'm glad you brought up the radio station because I, I think there's something that is so intrinsically powerful to people of you know that 80s and 90s as well where it's like you have these influential stations like 91x or k-rock in la and you know there's different touch points across the country but it was such a you know that was the only way that you were able to consume music on a regular basis and then you know tape it and listen to it back or whatever um but to be able to expose you to these you know left of center artists even though they are playing the radio is really important yeah, I mean, radio was like, that was like the thing, you know, you'd listen to the radio, you'd get familiar with the playlist. And then once you kind of knew the playlist, you'd listen to your own records. Or, or, or my favorite thing was, um, when I was in high school, was making my own cassette mixtapes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> where um, that's huge you know like where especially too if you were uh you know making them for friends or making them for uh you know a person you were trying to impress that was that was the thing i mean you people were making tapes and it was cool and it was like you would leave a tape with a friend and or they would leave one with you and it would fucking change you you know yeah it would like well, who did that song? And then you'd find that band and then there was, or act or whatever. And it was, yeah, it was, it was awesome. Or you tape. I, I remember, um, you remember West? Well, I, I, I don't know what era were, um, you listened to the radio, but like when I was a kid, it was Westwood one live concert on the weekend. Sure. And man, I got really into taping those. Um, and that's where I sort of, that's probably where I got my first sense of, you know, like, wow, it must be cool to be in a band. Yeah, <laughs> totally. You're like, that seems kind of cool. I might that's, be interested in that. That sounds really, all that applause sounds really kind of neat. <laughs> <laughs> Totally. And just, but actually, just really getting into the differences between the live versions and the recorded versions of whoever was playing, you know, like that was something I was super uh, paying attention to. And, and, you know, looking back now, I could see like that I was very interested in sort of the recording side of things pretty early on. Right, the documentation of it, how it could be different from the live. Why is it different? Studio. Right. Yeah. Why is it? Why is it different? Yeah. Why are <laughs> they playing it faster? Right. It's, it's making me excited. <laughs> totally. <laughs> you <It's> know, like, <laughs> this whole adrenaline thing is. Yeah. Wild. Yeah. Yeah. I'm driving faster right now. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. And I, I did not mean to do that. <laughs> so you're like you were mentioning, radio is a touch point for music. Was there, um, you know, uh, do you have brothers and sisters that were also kind of influencing your music tastes or parents? Or was it all kind of like your friends and like you mentioned, radio? No, I had a I have I had a younger brother, two years younger, um, who was was by the time I was a junior in high school was pretty he was pretty accomplished on guitar. Okay. And I just, you know, my experience with playing a musical instrument had been limited to like maybe two failed piano lessons when I was in fifth grade. Right. Um and that was it. Yep. And I just never really thought about it. But I felt it was kind of like the combination of like I could see the end of high school coming, which was a little, I was starting to f- fear time a little bit. I think it was the first time I did that, which probably normal for like a 17 year old. Mm-hmm. Um, and really getting into records and uh, just, just kind of listening to the same records over and over again and really studying them and just knowing getting to know them inside and out and then one day one day i just kind of was watching my i was hanging out with my brother in his room watching him play along with a rush he was super into prog rock okay and because of that i have a soft spot for it too uh especially rush in particular not not too many other bands but sure um i just i go dude show me a couple chords he's like what (laughs) <laughs> why haven't you asked me this before and it's i don't know just show me a couple chords let me just learn a really simple tune and he showed me a couple chords and i think it was like maybe two or three months later i was trying to use headphones as a microphone and plug them into my cassette recorder uh so that i could record a, a, a a chord progression that I th- thought was amazing. Right. You know? And so the, I, I got the bug. It was horrible, but like it, I got the bug for writing something and recording it really early on. And so my playing skills, they, they did develop, but it wasn't my focus. It was more, my focus was like more composition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, especially, I mean, it's really cool that you had that little spark of just, you know, when you, when you put two chords together and all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, this happens. I yeah. can do this. Yeah. <laughs> totally. It was amazing. Oh, and then I could go to the third chord. The third chord could be different every other time. Right. Oh my God. Well, to, and I mean, to that point as well, that's when, you know, as a kid, you feel no authority or autonomy. Like you're told what to do. You're told to go to school and do, you know, it's fine. That's part of the human process. But the moment that you feel like you have any control over your life, it's like, oh, I can do this. <laughs> yeah. And you, and for me, it was like, it, it was a very, like, um, so, it was like a solo thing or solitude, you know, I, I, mm-hmm. I, did, I didn't do it. I didn't do any music or I wouldn't do any music with people for another four years from there. Right. Yeah. So build your chops. 
<laughs> no, I just didn't really, I didn't take it seriously as a career path. I was just enjoying pay, playing and yeah. and learning parts, learning guitar parts off records, basically. But I was also getting into, before I moved to LA, I, I think a few months before I had bought like the cheapest four track, cassette four track that was available. And so I had started experimenting with uh, uh, coming up with two guitar parts on top of each other. And that was that was another sort of milestone for me that just sunk the the <coughs> the um, the hooks of playing music and, and recording and stuff deeper and deeper. Even though you totally missed the holiday, maybe you didn't order your mother or father or brother or sister a good present. But you know what you can do? You can make it up to them by ordering from rockabilly.com, getting them something in the new year just to be like, you know what? When you're heading back to school, here's a rad Misfits shirt. Here's a rad Metallica shirt. Whatever it is you're into, you need to use the promo code 100 words or less, and that gets you 10% off your order. And then visit rockabilly.com because they have so many items. Over 500,000 things that you can look at. If you want to spend bare minimum of eight hours on their website, you'll be able to find something. Um, you'll be able to probably view all 500,000 items if you spent that much time on a website. But regardless, this is all officially licensed, high-quality merchandise. The bands get paid. You're supporting an independent business. You're supporting this podcast. It is the virtuous cycle that you are tapping into when you are working with Rockabilly and ordering all of your favorite band merch. And uh, they've got so many things like, you know, it's, it's still the winter season. Got to buy some hoodies and some scarves. They got all that from all of your favorite bands. So please go to rockabilly.com hundred words or less is the promo code. Have fun exploring the website. And thank you as always to Rockabilly for your continued support of this show and bands and music in general. As you started to kind of, you know, grow up and feel that, uh, feel that pull towards, you know, playing in bands and and uh, figuring out what that would look like. Uh, I, I'm going to presume that Failure was not your first band because clearly, you know, you started that up in uh, L.A. Um, so did you play in other, you know, sort of your first kind of terrible band experiences and stuff like that uh, in I, San Diego or was that I, L.A.? Well, I had the first drummer of Failure, Robert Goss. Uh, I did jam with him in a barn for a few months. Okay. In North County, San Diego. He was drummer. And uh so yeah, we had I had a few no performances really, but like like you know, I had a few like setting up a marshal in a barn experiences. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh but other than that, I didn't really I didn't take it seriously. I did. I, I wasn't taking it very seriously, and I like, you know, I was in college full time, so it was like more like a back burner thing. But you know, I was it was something I did for fun, so I enjoyed it. It wasn't until I moved to L.A. and then the kind of isolation I felt in L.A. not having any friends from high school. There, I mean, there were a couple, but they were going to UCLA on the west side, and I was going to Cal State LA on the east side. So I had like almost no, I had no family and pretty much no friends, mm -hmm. which 
ended up being a good thing for for what would eventually become failure because I kind of had a my free time was basically spent diving deeper into four tracking. I went and bought a bass guitar at a pawn shop. I also got a drum machine at a pawn shop. And then I upgraded my four track uh, f- to a better, better quality sounding version, basically, mm-hmm. um, that I bought from someone from the recycler. So basically, I think by my sophomore year, my my apartment bedroom studio had a four track recorder, a 58 microphone, a bass guitar, an electric six string guitar, a crappy drum machine, and um, a Carvin combo guitar amp. All of it used, all of it um, probably under $400 total. Yeah, but that, I mean, that you, you're dialed in right there. <laughs> you got it all there. Basically. Yeah. You do have it all. And, and, and I, oh, and I had, I had, I think I had three pedals. I had a flanger, a delay, and a distortion box. Oh, incredible. I, I was going to say the metal zone pedal, but <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. I had the rat. The, oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. The, the old rat. Right. Well, I'm going to presume too that with the, um, you know, just fun and experimentation that you could do with all of those, you know, tools at your fingertips, you, um, you've always struck me just as a outside observer that you are, you know, you're friendly and outgoing, but at the same time, like you're totally fine just locking yourself in, you know, your, for example, the apartment with uh, all of those, uh, those fun tools, um, and just hanging out there for hours. Uh, so would you kind of, I guess, classically define yourself as a uh, introvert or an extrovert? Or is it kind of just like, well, I'm, I'm in the middle. I, I mean, I don't mind. I, I don't avoid people, but I, you're right. I can't lose myself and be by myself for very, very long stretches of time, days and weeks. <laughs> basically <Sure>. <laughs> <laughs> so i you know what i think what i think what what i remind myself of sometimes is yes uh, yes i'm a songwriter and i write songs and i i'm in a band but i also kind of just feel like like a tinkerer you know like mm-hmm. a gr- like a grandpa in the garage right like yeah. it's, it's your workbench it's my workbench and I have I have an actual workbench, you know, like where I mess around with guitars and pickups and pedals and cameras and just all that, st- like all that stuff to me is just, I don't know, I I, I could just literally I lo- I do lose myself in it, and I love to tinker with toys. But the end result it is pretty much always like music. There mm-hmm. is, there is, it's not only tinkering for tinkering. Like eventually I do finish something and there's a product to, you know. Right. Yeah. There's you a get product. It out of, right. You, you know. get it out. You get it off the workbench and you get it out there. Yeah. That makes sense. Even if uh, I'm just messing around with like camera and visual stuff, I'll end up with a video. Right, you know, right. and it might not be something that's released. It's just for family or friends or something. But like, I like making stuff. 
Yeah. It's a finished product. Right. I, I get what you're saying. And, and, you know, as you started to kind of really, you know, express yourself, not only musically, but visually as well, like, did you, uh, I guess, kind of find yourself falling into uh, particular music scenes as it were, you know, um, because I know the, as you were coming up in the, you know, late eighties, early nineties, there were definitely a lot of different options, both in San Diego and LA of being like, Oh, I'm a, you know, metal dude or a hardcore kid or a punk person or, you know, alternative rock, whatever. Like, did you find yourself falling into any of those scenes or did you just kind of dip around them all? We didn't feel connected to any scene at the time. Uh, failure didn't, uh, because no one really sounded like what we were doing. Sure. Um, there was, there was a punk thing, but we weren't punk. I mean, we were, people were describing us as like art rock noise band or something like shoegaze wasn't really a word yet. I don't think, mm-hmm. um, and I'm not sure people would have used that word. Some people use it now or shoe shoegazy space rock or whatever, but, um, no, in fact, what we what what we perceived uh as, as we were um putting the band together and actually getting a 30 minute set of live music that we could play uh what we were perceiving was the uh, and what w- was the most popular thing at the c- clubs in Hollywood at the time was the whole hair band thing which sure. just that was that was what was dominating the clubs where we wanted to play and so we couldn't play those clubs we we had to play the dive bars in hollywood and but that i mean it ended up being kind of cool and fun um uh and yeah i don't know it was i feel like the name of the band is a reaction Actually, the real story of the name of the band was that we would make fun of all the hair bands, um, their ads for band members in the recycler, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. M- like, must have professional attitude, pro hair required. <laughs> so good. You know? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, influences are, you know, uh, like Sacred Reich and, you know, just like whatever, the second, third, fourth tier bands of those genres and being like, what? What What are you guys doing? This is is ridiculous. Well, the focus was on, like, they had, the the ridiculousness of those ads was that they felt like they had cracked the code and they knew what a professional rock band member had to do in every category what they had to wear what instrument they played what their hair was like uh what kind of car they drove um you know all of it was had been completely codified and like it and so i I remember robert our first drummer who was i I don't know if he coined it, but he brought up the name failure and he was, or the name failure was being bandied about. And he was just like, I love it. I can't wait to see those guys' faces when they, when they see an ad failure looking for a bass player. <laughs> True. That's really funny. Like they would just be like, what the fuck? 
Who is that the band's name? And that was the extent of our uh, plan to be sure. a to be a band at that point was to fuck with the hair bands. That was yeah. it. <laughs> that was the only, that was it was that was the business plan, right? <laughs> that was the business plan. We executed it. And then the funny thing happened on the way to executing it, we got a record deal. Right. <laughs> exactly. Well, it, uh, and I, I find it interesting in the trajectory of, you know, as you guys started to, you know, get out there and you were uh, record labels, as far as the music business was concerned, were totally grasping at straws in regards to like, okay, this is like post grunge and like, what's next? Like, we don't exactly know, but we know we could probably got to pick something adjacent to grunge. And so, you know, that's kind of obviously where failure comes into play uh, because it's like, okay, they got melody and they, you know, they, no, uh, no, 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 <laughs> time, time, timeline a little off. Grunge had not happened. Okay. Oh, grunge, you act, that's true. When you guys actually signed, that's true. That's true. Well, our first show was in 89. Right. Like the very end of 89. And sure. then, so 90 we, was the year where we really played, I think we played 16 shows in the first half of 1990, which was, that, so that's a lo- lo- lot of shows for a, a local band, you know? Sure. And sure enough, by like mid-year, we had a couple labels wanting to sign us. Um, And that's when everything, like the whole thing just changed, you know, because it was like, wait a second, this was, this was to just fuck with those guys. And now you're telling me I should quit my day job. Like what? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Cause I was at my day job at the time was actually kind of cool. I was directing music videos. Sure. For like major label rap artists, which was, the rap part of it was kind of weird, but directing was super fun. I felt like it was kind of what I was training to do while I was in college. I did go to film school. Right. And so I kind of felt like, well, I'm sort of executing my plan. What is this plan? You know, and their plan was, what well, we, we want you to make a, a, an album. We're going to release it. And then we want you to get in a van and go tour the country. And you're like, but I, I'm good here. I'm, I'm good <sighs> directing music videos. <laughs> it was, there was a month or so, maybe two, three weeks where I definitely was doing some soul searching because sure. in the end, I, I think I just couldn't Say, like if someone's going to pay you to make music, I mean, Jesus Christ, that's really hard to say no. Totally. You're like, I got to try it at least. I got to try it. And, and it, and if it doesn't work out, I'll know in a year and I can just come back to this other stuff. And then, you know, here we are 30 years later. Right. Right. <laughs> no, that's, that's true. And I appreciate you correcting the, uh, the, the time frame of that. I, I just, um, it, with your guys's, uh, progression. And then, you know, as you started to deal with the business side of music, was that something that you, I guess, felt comfortable with or enjoyed, or was it something that you just kind of needed to do because that was, you know, how to get the band moving forward? The business side of it, like, you mean like, Get yeah, it. like once you start, you know, like booking shows and record deals and like, oh, we got to do merch and like all of these things that, you know, kind of uh, obviously play an important part of uh, the band life. 
Oh, yeah, you're sort of like the loss of innocence, you mean? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, some some could phrase it as such, yes. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> yeah, the reality is that, and I don't know how many people know this, but like, like if you're if you're in a band like a full time band and it's your career, let you're spending way more time promoting music than you are making music. That's just the that's just the realities of yep. of it. So if you got in it to be on stage or in the studio the entire time, you're gonna have you know surprised. Um, so. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't dig all that stuff. That I mean, at this point, I'm pretty knowledgeable about it because I've been sure. doing it for so long. But it's never been something that I totally love. Um, I do what I do. The the these sort of uh, adjacent things to making the music and playing the shows to me have more to do with like the imagery and maybe a little bit of the marketing. Um, but the, doing the deals and all that stuff is like, yeah, it's a drag. It's a drag. <laughs> I, I, I just want to, I did. I literally, I'm, 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 a, I'm like a kid like that. I, when I wake up, I just want to play, you know, yep. like play with my toys. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, as you, you know, started to uh, progress within the context of, you know, doing the band stuff full time and everything. How were your, uh, you know, parents as you started to pursue these creative arts where it's like, you know, I mean, it's one thing to be like, okay, I'm going to move to LA and, you know, get into film. Um, You know, did your parents understand it all? Were they just like, oh, Ken, um, I don't know about this. You're making a big mistake. Or where did they sit on the fence? Well, there were two two moments that the parents um, expressed themselves. The f- first moment was moving to L.A. Because yep. the move to L.A. was my whole high school um, time. What, everyone thought I was going to be a pre-med biology major at UCSD. Because I'd I'd gotten a chance to work at the Salk Institute in San Diego, which is like a science research facility. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you know, Jonas Salk, polio vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked in several different labs during the summers and even part-time during the school year in my junior and senior year there. So I got to know all these like famous scientists and they wrote me these incredible like recommendation letters. And so, of course, I got r- right into like the best colleges in in San Diego for uh, biology or or the pre med track, but basically, you know, becoming a doctor. And so th- that everyone was like, "Oh, Ken's taken care of. It's all going to be fine. We, are, we have to worry about him." And then I surprised him because right right after I graduated high school, I was like, "Yeah, I'm not going to go to UCSD." That's a pretty that's a pretty big shift, right? Yeah. And they're like, "What? Yeah, I want to go to SDSU, which is, you know, a, a a a class below in terms of university overall. I mean, sure. it's not it's not a horrible university or anything, but UCS no, no, no. UCSC very prestigious, especially the pre-med program there." Yeah. Um turned it down 
and uh, went to SDSU because they actually had a film department. And I had done a lot of sort of video production stuff in high school, and I knew I loved that. So basically, I had this kind of like, you know, epiphany or something towards the end of my senior year where I was just like, the, the, the train that I'm on, I want to get off because I just... Yeah, yeah, it was fun doing all that stuff, but I don't actually really like science that much. Right. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I was good at it and I did learn a lot, but I wasn't like the reality of it being a career path just really hit me and I was just like, "Holy shit. No. This is not for me. This is not for me. I I I don't want to do this." And so I completely shifted gears. And went to film school in San Diego. But the thing that happened there was that I got about one semester in. And I saw in the film building on the bulletin board, they had posted uh, what all the uh, previous year's um, graduates from the program were doing. And none of them were working in the business. Not one. They were all still in San Diego doing other shit. <laughs> right, right. And I ripped it off the board and walked into the dean and I of the of that college. And I was like, is this real or is this a hoax? He's like, that's real. And I go, I, my mouth was just open. And he goes, yeah, yeah, you need to get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible. It was awesome. It was crazy. He's like, yeah, if you're, if you're actually serious about this, you need to get the hell out of here. And right. go and go to LA or New York. Right. Go to the real world. That's actually gonna get you out of here. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> and and I go, well, there's no state university system, California state university system in New York. He's like, Yeah, well, if you want your these all these credits you got here to count, you're gonna have to stay in the system. So I transferred to Cal State LA. They also had a film and TV program, actually smaller, half the size, half the amount of students, but way better because the professors running it were former, you know, um, DPs and former directors that actually had worked in the business. And right. so they still had a ton of connections in the real business. So as failure started to get out there and, you know, tour, put out records and everything, uh, what was your relationship like for touring? You know, was it something that you enjoyed a lot at the beginning? And then once it, it became a regular part of your life, uh, the relationship with that changed? Or was it always generally uh, interesting and exciting for you? Well, the first fir first time doing it is super fun. You know, it's just, it's yeah, I don't When you're like 22 and getting in a van to tour the, the country for the first time, it's like on someone else's dime. It's awesome. Right. Um, but then, yeah, like after you play 100 shows and check into 100 hotels, it's kind of like, I don't need to do that anymore. You know? Right. Or, right. or it just gets boring. And so I just don't like the traveling aspect of it. The performance is just great, but you know, the thing of it is, is you're on the road the whole time and the performance is only 60 to 90 minutes. Right. right? So it's like the rest of it is just like living in a vehicle in a bus or a van or, 
you know i mean it's first world problems totally but like after when you do like you know there were a couple of years back then where we did 150 shows in a year and it's like that's like more than half the year on the road so yeah and the other thing is you know and I, i i think one thing i've learned about myself over the years is that i don't I, I love I love our fans and I love hanging out with them and I love playing failure music and I love the celebration of the show. But I don't think I get the same thing out of performing for people that a lot of other performers do get. Um, okay. And what I mean by that is like maybe about like I'm, I'm missing out on the validation aspect of it or something mm-hmm. or just like some people I've just noticed that some people after like a show, you could just, they're just on cloud nine for days, you know, like it's just like, it really feeds their soul on a certain level. And I don't know. I just never, I never had that like, um, that reaction to it to me it was i mean i like i said i love one of my favorite things to uh, to do touring wise now is actually meeting with the uh, vip stuff that we do because you actually get to sit down and talk to somebody sure you know and really have an interaction uh and and those are cool because they're unique you know they're you're you're not gonna have the same experience the next day sure you know sometimes the grind of the tour you're playing the same set because of production aspects and lighting and cues and all that so you know it's not like you're up there improvising or right or or composing right you know (laughs) yeah it's it's the um yeah, it's. It, 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 I know as your relationship with you know putting out music and and touring, and as you start to collect all these experiences, uh, you know you start to be able to identify what you actually like about the process and the creative process, and be like, well, in order to do this, I have to do this, and sometimes that's what people end up like with touring and playing live, where it's like, well, I know I have to do this in order to like you know press the flesh, <laughs> like get that you know feedback in a positive way. But then you know I also like just hanging out with my pedals in my room. Yeah, I mean, I see them. They're on, they're on equal footing to me, or maybe even the creative moments are, are more higher priority for me. You know, right. I mean, or or. or I would want to cultivate as much time, uh, creative time as I can squeeze it out of the schedule somehow. Um, I don't know. I just, I just think some of the best, like real rock stars are just, you know, chomping at the bit to get in front of that audience. That's where they become, it's like they reach their potential. You know what I mean? Sure. And, and, I've often thought that like maybe if we actually had one of those people in the band, we would be further along in our career. (laughs) I mean, I'm being totally honest. I mean, I'm just like, you know, certain people, you look like, you know, a David Bowie or a Scott Weiland or something. It's just like, they can't help but be rock stars. 
right when they're on yeah. stage they just can't it's just what it's in their dna sure right the 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 magnetic personality of some people is just like it's undeniable and you're like well like that's what's going to lead as opposed to you know um, I mean, fortunately, they obviously are unbelievably creative individuals as well and have good music, uh, you know, but sometimes that it isn't even that important. It's just like, wow, I got to watch this person, <laughs> you know? Yeah, you're just, you, 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 it, no no words really can describe it. You're just kind of mesmerized. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. And I always felt like, yeah, that maybe we don't have quite that uh, quotient of uh, rock right. starism in the band. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, it, and I guess with those uh, earlier tours and, you know, once you started to recognize that the band did, you know, have people following along and understanding, uh, you know, what you guys were doing, even though you didn't fit into a particular scene. When did you feel, I guess, that the band was like, quote unquote, real, where it was like, oh, wow, people are paying attention to what we're doing, whether it was, you know, an early tour or the fact that you obviously got signed to a record label um or maybe you still feel like the band isn't real <laughs> just kidding <laughs> yeah yeah no sometimes i mean i mean it, sure. it depends what you're comparing it to it's true it's true yeah um uh yeah there were two i would i would divide it up into two phases okay the sort of like before getting signed and getting signed that was like yeah, a moment of recognition, like, wow, somebody is going to actually spend money, is betting on our music. Well, that's pretty cool. Um, and then once you're signed, then the slow realization that you basically just walked into a bigger room that you're even you know, further behind in, you know, if that makes sense. And you, you start realizing you need to actually promote your band to your own label and um you know i think before you get signed a lot of bands think or or artists think oh i just need to get signed and then once you're signed you realize it actually means nothing right like that's where the hard work begins <laughs> that's actually that's where the pressure starts because sure. if you want to stay signed, you're going to have to sell records. Uh, totally. So, yeah, it 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 can be, it can be, it, it's more stressful in a way because that's when it becomes real. That's when you've had to say no to certain other things, probably, and you've kind of committed to it, mm -hmm. and now it's you got to make it happen. Sure, absolutely. Uh, I, I'd be remiss if I did not bring up uh, "You're the Rabbit" just because I I did see you guys uh, when you were on tour with Thursday, and uh, I mean I personally love that record, and I know it's uh, probably retained some you know interesting cult like status amongst people who are you know <laughs> big Ken Andrews fans. Um, that uh, you know that was a you know a one and done sort of major label. Uh, debut and then you know you guys obviously went your separate ways uh i mean you're still friends but you had that uh you know record and then it was kind of done um but it, it did seem like there was for lack of a better term momentum as the record got released and you know you guys did your fair share of touring and stuff like that um did it did it feel i guess any different than your experiences with uh failure or was it kind of just like 
you know, a, a little bit of different skin on it. Um, like from a creative standpoint or like the more like career? More like the, yeah, more like the career business side of things. Because, I mean, sonically, there are obviously similarities and, mm-hmm. you know, clearly there's a lot going on uh, there that people can pull the threads through. But yeah, I guess from a, a business perspective, it felt any different. Honestly, that the story of you're the rabbit from the, from the business um, angle is kind of crazy, really. I mean, yeah. it, in the sense that, I mean, so I, w- I had already been in failure and yep. then I had also had a, a a solo uh deal as on with sony mm-hmm. uh in two, two from 2000 to 2002 one album um and both that was just like the crazy time both because both of them were like really high high number record deals like i made some money on both of those deals Sure. And especially the year of the rabbit was crazy. Like it was <laughs> really crazy. Like I almost was like, this, this can't be real. And it just shows you how just out of whack the whole label thing was at that point that Electra would sign it banned for close to a million dollars. And then within 10 months, drop them. Right, not care. <laughs> it's true, right? I mean, I, I just thought, oh fuck, they're spending that much money. They're gonna have to recoup on us, right? No, no, because right. really, the reality is, is that for a major label at that point in time, for them to really take a shot at something was a three to five million dollar proposition, not a one million dollar signing. Right, right. You know what I mean, like they would spend money radio you know like tour support like everything really added up uh pretty quickly um so you know a big signing would still be a good write-off you know sure right it's like well we'll we'll try it for a moment and then uh you see where it goes from there but yeah with in less than a year to not care about it and just wrap it up it was like i'm sure that's wild it, it was just, it was insane to me because like, you know, I kind of like sworn off being an artist essentially. Right. I swore it off after failure broke up in 97 and th- then I went right back into it with a solo thing. Then yep. that was a, just a heartbreaking record label tragedy again. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing that ever again. And I, and the cool thing was, is that I was getting plenty of producing and mixing work. So I right. get to, I got to keep doing kind of what I really wanted to do, which was be in the studio. Um, and so I was just, I've, you know, I was acting like it didn't bug me. I'd just be like, oh, fuck that. I don't want to be an artist. But right. but the reality is, it was my I, my heart heart was broken. I had put everything into those bands or those records, sure. And for strictly for business uh, reasons related to the labels and the staffing of those labels, those projects didn't happen. Right. Um. That was it. 
I mean, especially the on one was crazy because that one was actually already on the radio and charting when uh, the person that was heading up the label who in the run up to the record coming out was like, yeah, we're going for this. We're going to spend some coin on it. Right before it came out, they took uh, the chip off my number. And they, they put it out, but only so they could own it. Because I had a clause in my contract that said they had to release it. Otherwise, it reverted back to me. And wow. Yeah. They had to claim that in order to you know have the rights over and, it. And my attorney warned me, don't put that in your, in your, in your contract. And I was like, no, I want to hold their feet to the fire. And he's like, yeah, it's not going to go that way. <laughs> You're like, this sounds like a good idea, though. Trust me. Yeah. yeah. Right. And he, he, he knew what he was talking about. Right. Yeah. yeah. You're like, yeah, well, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He was pretty, pretty much right about everything, basically. Yeah. It's, but you live and you learn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The uh, last two things I want to hit on that I'll let you go of the, um, you know, I, I know that as you were talking about previously, you know, in your apartment with all of your, you know, fun tools and starting to experiment with recording, you clearly did a lot uh, of recording on failure. And like you mentioned, you know, you have done a, a lot for a lot of different bands ever since was, um and, and like you said, you were kind of, you know, licking your wounds after, uh, you know, failure had uh, disbanded and obviously those experiences that you were mentioning. Um, was it just one of those things where it's like, as you started to settle into your identity as this, like, you know, engineer, producer, mixer, um, did it become pretty comfortable quickly or was it a, a difficult transition into being that kind of, you know, Hey, I'm the, you know, I'm the person that you hired to do this. And obviously I'm not going to, you know, overstep my bounds and kind of figure out those, those lines. Yeah, it was not a problem for me at all. I, nice. I it, it, it was it was very comfortable, super comfortable. I love. I mean, it was like the only thing. I mean, is it, and it's just obvious. It's just like you're not working on your own compositions. You know, you're working on someone else's vision. But in the real nuts and bolts, what you're doing day to day, you're making records. You know. You're, you're you're recording acoustic guitar you're recording a drum kit you're talking about the arrangement you're doing all the same shit it's just you don't have to i mean it's not your song but also you don't have to go promote it that was right. the other thing that i actually would loved is that you know i'd work with a band and then they would go out there and sell the records. <laughs> right. And I could stay home and make another record with another band. Right. It's It all made so much sense to me that it was very easy to uh, just kind of shrug off people saying, well, are you going to do a band again? Or, you know, are you working on any of your own new music? And, you know, I'd just be like, why would i do that right i i, I already did that yeah I, you, you remember what happened right <laughs> <laughs> totally Dude, you, were you not friends with me back then yeah. you know, like this this is what happened you saw it yeah you saw it it sucked right um, right 
And then, you know, it's just like one of those things. I, but this, the, the break between Year of the Rabbit and Failure rebooting was the bigger, more significant break. And it was like, I was not going to return to being an artist, really. I, I right. ser- A serious artist who toured all the time. You know, I sure. still did a solo record and played a few shows, but like the whole Failure rebooting thing was kind of unexpected because uh, Greg and I weren't really hanging out too much. And then we both had our first kids within about six months of each other. And that mm-hmm. is what triggered us hanging out and, right, right. and ultimately led to actually playing music in my studio together. Yeah. Kid, kids can do that to you. <laughs> it, it's really uh it's cool too. to, I mean, I, I did attend personally that 2014 El Rey show. And I know that was such a interesting experience for you guys, because it was just like, dude, this show, this show sold out in like, you know, five minutes, like well, this is so wild. And there was a, a lot of pent up demand for it. Um, even though you guys, you know, weren't necessarily aware of that. Um, was that, I'm going to guess that because of that, you know, initial outpouring of support and interest from, people of all, you know, ages and shapes and sizes, uh, that gave you kind of the motivating factor to, you know, do what you guys do now where, you know, you play some shows, you dip in every couple of years with new music and you can kind of control it now better than you could back in the nineties. Yeah. And we own it all, which is, which is, it's a, it's a wholly different situation, you know, like you're not, uh beholden to some people's you know quarterly requirements or for anything for either putting out product or sales or or whatever or having a band that's on tour this quarter or whatever it is you know they had a lot we basically were just being led around you know right just like this is what you're doing today with it, there was no question of whether it was like the right thing and we were just told to do it and we did it and now it's just like a complete owning your own business like this is a completely completely different situation and we we know our fans better we hang out with them more and i don't know it's just it's so cool to like actually make something put it out yourself and then actually get to reap the reward of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's the full circle nature of it. Uh, the, um, the last thing I want to hit you with was the, you know, I, I'm sure that you have uh, participated in uh, scenarios, usually from a, you know, a record label brings an idea to a band and is like, Hey, you guys should do this, uh, you know, tour or do this, you know, promo opportunity that, seems really awkward or just like, I don't know about this, but then you end up doing it just because, you know, it's like, well, I I guess this is part of the process. And then it turns out to be, you know, really funny, awkward or whatever the case may be. Um, Were there any situations that, you know, as I articulate that, that kind of come up in your head where I was like, oh yeah, that was funny. We did this, uh, you know, show at a gas station because we were told to do that or something like that. Anything uh, come up in your head? Any, I mean, it's, I mean, You're like, where, do I, where do I begin? <laughs> that's a long list. I mean, that is a freaking long list. I mean, opening for for bands that were it was maybe not super musically in a or appropriate, 
sure. would be like the minimal ones. Yeah, you. We played weird places. We played uh, actually not failure. I had something happen to me with on that was really bad. Where okay, the radio station was playing the shit out of my song, but they also played new metal. Oh, I, yeah. You I, know I where this is going, going right? Yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Please tell me. <laughs> and so someone had the, hey, we're going to have like a mini radio show festival thing. It's going to be so awesome. We're going to have all these different kinds of acts. It's going to be like four or five acts, but it's not going to be like a huge double day affair. We're just going to do it small and it's going to be like more like not household names, like, you know, newer acts. And um, it's going to be smaller. And it's going to be inside. And I just saw, I saw it on a piece of paper. I was just like, I saw five acts listed and it seemed fine to me. It just, it, it made sense from what I knew of these types of things, you know? So sure. Sure. So we agreed to do it. What I didn't realize is that un- until we were going on basically that there was only two acts left. The other three had bailed for another, some other festival or something. Okay. So it was just my pop synth, you know, slightly dark Depeche Mode kind of, you know, project on with a full-on new metal group. Beautiful. And the problem was, is that the radio station hadn't really pumped the show. And by the time they did, all the tickets were gone because this other band's management had um, posted like a way for their fans to get tickets. Sure. And they bought all the tickets. And then the band actually paid to have them bust in. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> and so you guys were just sitting there. We were just s- hanging out. sitting ducks, basically, for, for some really angry young men. <laughs> right you know. well and especially i mean especially you know if you're looking at the uh sliding scale of your most aggressive band like on is for sure at the lighter end of the spectrum <laughs> so i could just see you being like well this is gonna go terribly i i said i said like uh, this is gonna go bad and i hold you responsible to my, to my manager as i was walking on stage <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that's so and good. sure enough, like fourth song in, we we had uh, projectiles being thrown at us pretty much the whole time. But sure. I think it was the fourth song in. Someone I don't even know how they got it ha- had a beer bottle. It was empty, but it landed on the drummer's drum kit and exploded in glass. Went everywhere. No one got hurt. I mean, a couple little scrapes, but like. I was. I just walked off. I was just like, "Fuck this! See you later." Yeah. I flipped off the crowd and left. <laughs> You're like, "I'm I'm giving you guys exactly what you want. See ya." <laughs> See, the thing of it was, I was kind of used to combative crowds because we tool we, we we toured with Tool. Sure. So there, when we played our more you know poppy or melodic stuff, like we would have some 
issues occasionally. We occasionally get shit thrown. But we always we kind of knew how to handle it and we always had uh you know heavier stuff that we could pull out anytime right. and we needed to. So we would adapt and survive. There was sure. no way to survive that with on. <laughs> I mean, no, right. <laughs> I mean, it was Nothing. either Stay on stage and possibly be killed or leave. <laughs> yeah, nothing nothing you could pull out there uh, could do any justice to that, nor did you want to do any justice to that event. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, Ken, I really appreciate you hanging out. Thanks for letting me uh, ping pong around your brain. And um, yeah, I, I really appreciate you. Yeah, no problem. My pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah. Absolutely. That was Ken Andrews. Thank you very much to him. Thank you very much to his publicist, Monica, who is a friend of the show. And uh, yeah, just she always she always brings me great ideas, and I, I love to hear them. So next week will be uh, the last episode of the year. I didn't take a break off this year. No, no dull moments in your podcast listening sessions. Next week is Todd Mackey, the vocalist from recently reunited hardcore, in my opinion, legends <laughs> with honor. Uh, I've known Todd for a long time and we just, I don't know, kind of lost contact, but uh, I was so excited to see with honor back and playing shows and they're going to be releasing new music next year. So many cool things. And, uh, Todd and I reconnected over the beautiful social media network, Instagram. And I was like, Todd, come on the show. Let's hang. I really want to know what you've been up to. And, uh, he's been a busy beaver. So, uh, yeah, that's what we get to talk about next week. So Todd Mackey from with honor. And until then, please be safe, everybody.